I traveled this last week. I went to Indiana, where I was born and raised in the Fort Wayne area, to see my family and friends growing up. And while I was there, I made a point to come into the kitchen and to, when everybody was kind of out, it was just my mom, and I said, Mom, I need you to promise me something. I need you to write this fork into your will. That may sound pretty weird to you, but for us, it's a manner of honor in my family. You see, this specific fork has been the subject of many, many, many sibling fights growing up. Because you see, this fork is the perfect fork. I have never seen a fork better than this fork. It was perfectly weighted, perfect color, four spines. It was just a beautiful fork. But more than that, it gave us siblings an excuse to fight over something growing up. Does anybody go home and bring up the old past in a good, loving way with your siblings? A couple of you, that's good. And so I made it a subject just to let my siblings know that I had won this last week, that I got mom to write the fork into her will, or at least asked her to do it. So that's what I did this Thanksgiving. And I'm pretty sure that I've won the war with the fork. But all jokes aside, though, you know, when we were kids, nothing could be, uh, you know, part of, part of raising our kids is teaching them how to navigate conflict. A good parent, a parent that is trying to invest into your child, teaches them how to uh, go through conflict resolution. You know, fighting with your siblings, I think, is just inevitable. It's, it's just part of the growing process. It just happens. And so Amy and I, we get these requests often. Mom, Nora, Mom, Noble, Mom, Nellie, Mom, the dog did this, whatever happened, okay? And so we get those things all the time. And we try to have our first response to ask them, have you gone and talked to the person? Have you gone and talked to your brother? Have you gone and told the dog you don't like it when she licks your face when you're on the ground? Have you gone and done those things? This is not a scientific research, but I'm pretty sure that 99% of the, uh, the weariness that comes from parenting is just managing fights over forks and who licked who. I, I don't know for sure if that's the real math, but it feels like that often. We want our kids to grow up with the ability to resolve fights. We want our kids to be able to grow up with the ability to navigate conflict and be able to create unity and peace in their families. We want our family to stay unified. But you know, sometimes when it's funny to look at kids who fight over forks or knives or the perfect cup or who gets to sit in the front seat or whatever, sometimes it can be funny when we look at that. But when you see an adult acting the same way as a five-year-old, it's not as funny, right? Yeah. When the displays of immaturity we see in kids come out as an adult, it can be frustrating and disheartening. You know, these past nine weeks, we've spent our time in the first three chapters of Ephesians. For nine weeks, we've studied 66 verses, chapters 1 through 3, going into this deep dive of what Paul's been writing to the church. And in this first half of his letter, Paul's been patiently and in detail and through repetition saying it over and over again, then describing and outlining our position in Christ. Ephesians 2.6 says, He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. 
because we are united with Christ Jesus. Paul spent 66 verses going in-depth, telling you about your position. You've been seated. You are in Christ and all of the benefits that come along with that. When we are with Christ and in Christ, it affects our relationship to God. It reflects our relationship with each other. It reflects how we see ourselves. But mostly what Paul's been doing in these first three chapters is describing who God is. And the benefit of every single person that's caught up in him, what happens when we're with him. We've realized that this first work that God's been doing in our lives is in us. You go back to Ephesians chapter 2.10. We are the masterpieces that God's been working on. The only good things, the only holy things, the only things in Christ that come out of us is because Christ first did that work inside of us. And for three chapters, Paul's been going through this. But finally, I know most of you were just anticipating this at your Thanksgiving holidays. We finally reached the middle of Ephesians, right? I knew it. I knew you guys were so excited. And now we are in chapter 4. We've hit the midpoint and we've hit a transition period in the letter. For three chapters, Paul's been describing God and describing our position in God. But chapter 3 is a change in scenery yet again. We've scaled one mountain in chapters 1 through 3, but 4 we realize we've hit the top and we realize the adventure keeps going on. We realize that there's a new leg to this journey. Pastor Eugene Peterson, he says it this way, we are at a transition point in Ephesians, moving from an exuberant exploration of who God is, the way he works, to a detailed account of who we are, and the way we work. And the way that Paul transitions this is he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So what is this calling that Paul's calling us to? It's everything we just talked about the last nine weeks. Every sermon for the past nine weeks is from chapters 1 through 3. God has been calling us to this new life. And he's been setting all the groundwork, all the foundation of what a death life looks like versus a lived life. And so we've been looking at what does it mean to be dead and what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be living in these spiritual blessings that God sent us? One more time, this is Eugene Peterson. He says, God's word to us is inherently a call. It's an invitation a welcome into his presence and action. The calling gives us a destination. It determines what we do, shapes our behavior, forms a coherent life. Our English word deprived from the, derived from the Latin for call, vocare, is vocation. Vocation or calling is a way of life. A job is different. A job is an assigned piece of work. When the work is done, the job is over, and we go back to being just ourselves, free to do anything we choose to do. There's, there's a life that you've been called to in Christ, and it has nothing to do with the ways that we like to describe ourselves. Hi, what's your name? My name is Josh. What do you do? I work blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, we feel like we know who you are based on what you do. But there's a stark difference in the Bible of what we do for work and for living and for money versus a vocation or a calling. 
And God's saying, and Paul's saying that you, each of us, have a calling placed on our lives that has nothing to do with the day-to-day that we do with our hands. It could, it could overlap, but there's a calling that exceeds what we do from 9 to 5. There's a calling that exceeds what we are on the weekends and how we spend our money and how we spend our free time. There is something that you've been called to. It's that in Christ living that Paul was talking about for three chapters. And so Paul's finally walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So what does that mean? To walk worthy means to literally level the scale. In the Greek, it means to make it even, to make it balanced. And so what Paul's saying here is that there's not worth in you, that you don't need to make yourself worthy of the calling. He's saying the call has been put on your life. Now match your life to the calling. He's saying make the level even, make the scale even, bring it into balance. The things that Christ has already done in you, already given you, already that spiritual inheritance, you didn't have to do anything to earn it. Your place, your position with God, all those things, those are already there. Now match your life to your calling. Maybe uh, a stupid way to think about this is walkie-talkie. Make your talkie match your walkie, okay? I don't know if that helps you or not, but I bet you will remember after the sermon that he said walkie-talkie. I don't remember anything else, but I'm going to make my talkie match my walkie, okay? Paul is calling the church to help us to match our day-to-day life to the calling, the predetermined life that God had set before the beginning of time, before we messed up, before we fell far from God because of sin. He's saying live equal to that calling. Match it. Don't let there be a discrepancy in your life. Walk worthy of the calling that's been given to you. And so what way do we walk that out? What's the first thing that he calls us to do? Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So the first thing that Paul is calling us to do is to live our life in a way that creates peace and keeps the unity in the family of God. He's saying, you've been called, you've been called, you've been called. Now walk worthy. And what big job do we have is work through your fights. Keep the unity. Keep the peace. John Michael Talbert, I've I've read this quote many times, but it's worth saying. He says, when we hear the call to follow Jesus as his disciples... We do so as a personal response to Christ. But as soon as we follow him, we discover that a bunch of other people have also showed up. But in my words, as soon as those people show up, you realize how annoying those people can be. If you spend any amount of time with people in close proximity, you quickly realize that people are incredibly frustrating. Why doesn't everybody just do it how I want you to do it, how I think you should do it? Wouldn't life be so much better if everybody just thought the way that we thought? But as soon as you follow Jesus, you naturally put yourself in the community of believers. And as soon as you start rubbing shoulders with those other people, you realize that we all have our own idiosyncrasies. We all have our own ways of doing things. We all have our own thoughts and feelings. A couple weeks ago, I put this post out on Instagram and said, Which one of you 
listens to who thinks that Christmas music should be played before Thanksgiving? Just put your hand down. I don't want to know. <laughs> Even right there, you can see the sin in this body of people. <laughs> So often the greatest disruptors to our peace is people. There's a story of a man that was stranded on an island, alone for a number of years. Finally, one day, his signal fire is seen on the shore, and so he's rescued. And so the people come on land to get him and to bring him back into the boat. And so he takes them on a tour of the island before he leaves. And he takes them up to his house and he says, this is my house. I built this with my two hands and I've lived here for years. And so he takes him out to the beach shore and he walks down the beach a little bit and he says, this building, this is the church I've attended all these years. I built this with my two hands. And so the people go in and they look in and say, wow, this is really comfortable. This is beautifully built. What a wonderful place to worship. And then walking out the front doors of the church, they look down the beach a little farther and one person says, hey, what's that building all the way over there? And he says, oh, that's the church I used to attend. And that can be the American way of approaching things. Two cars, two kids, a dog, and a half dozen churches we used to attend. That's the American's consumerism way that we approach church. If it gets too hard, too painful, leave and go find a new community. Now, I'm not saying that, there's, that it's wrong, inherently wrong, to go to a different church. I've probably attended eight, nine different churches in my lifetime, high level of leadership in those churches. But often, more often than not, why we make a lateral move to a new church down the road is not a, a move of God, but more often than not, a human issue. A spirit of pride, hurt, running away from conflict or pain. Far too often a church, a church transfer has much more to do with our disunity than a prompting from God. And I understand why. If you've been in the church world for more than a few weeks, you probably understand it too. You know, in our heads, on paper, it would seem that the church would be the most harmonious, loving, peaceful, unified place that we know. But if you've been in church, you know that as soon as you're here, as soon as you start to rub shoulders with people, that our self can start to rise up in that. As soon as you start to spend that dedicated time with people, it's easy to be bit, to be hurt, to be wounded, to find pain in church. The reason is that we're all people. None of us are Jesus. None of us are God. We're all in a place of becoming, all trying to walk worthy of that manner, walk worthy of the calling that God's put on our lives. And if you found the secret to success, please come and tell me how to be a perfect person after this. Because we'll do a whole sermon series on it, okay? I'll even let you preach it. But as far as I know, I still don't get it right every day of my life. Consistently, regularly, I have to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I, I, I didn't do this well. I didn't walk worthy of the calling you've put on my life. I have to receive that repentance. I have to receive that help. I have to receive that forgiveness and get up and walk in those new mercies every single day again. And God's mercy and love is that we get to walk, wake up every day and try again. But in the trying and in the growing and in the maturity, we hurt people along the way. You know, I've fought worse and been worse to the people that I love most in my life. 
You know, what I did to my siblings is called just brothers or ki- being brothers or kids being kids. But if I taped you inside of a trampoline box and threw worms in it and pushed you to the side of the road, you'd probably call the cops and send me to jail, right? Sometimes our worst wounds are with the people that we love the most. Sometimes the persecution or the hurt that we are feeling isn't outside the church. It's right here inside of it. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, walk worthy of the calling that was placed on your life. And the first place to start is to keep peace and unity to the best that you can. Because he knows that people can hurt people. And he gives us a couple ways, a couple practices to live this out, to keep the peace and keep the unity. He gives us a few words of advice to live by. I'm going to read this again. Verses 1 through 3 in the ESV this time. He says, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the spirit in the bond of peace. The very first word here that sticks out to us is that walk worthy of that calling with all humility. And so we're going to look at each section here in the opposite of this section. So you have humility, and the opposite of humility would be pride or selfishness. And so I want to talk to you about the early church. And so when us preachers get to talking about early church, usually we get to and harp on Acts chapter 2. We tell you about all the amazing things that happened. There's the spirit baptism, and the people would preach on the corner. They grew by 3,000 people in one sermon. Isn't that incredible? They went and they shared everything they had. They sold everything they had so that there was no needs. They gathered together, broke bread in each other's houses. They were this ideal picture of church and community. But the impressive thing about the new church in Acts is not chapter 2. It's chapter 6. It's not that the church blew up, lots of things explode overnight. It's not that they came together for a couple services and had fellowship. It's that they stayed together. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. I don't know if you've ever met that person. Maybe it was a best friend, maybe it was your spouse, maybe it was somebody else. But you're like, this person's amazing. And you just spend all your time with that person and you love them and you like how they do their coffee and how they dress and they think like you and everything's amazing. But then you get to that one moment a couple weeks in or a month in, you're like, wait, what is wait, what is that? That's annoying. What do you and all of a sudden you realize that they're not this perfect person that you thought they were at first. And so here's the church exploding in chapter 2, but a few verses later, a few chapters later, as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. And really, church, that's all you need for a church split. As I was prepping this week for this message, I found a story about a church that split Because one lady brought off-brand whipped cream to the potluck. That's crazy, but I kind of get it. Because off-brand whipped cream has nothing on the real stuff, right? Okay, we can vote later. 
We need very, very little to cause conflict amongst the relationships among ourselves. We can, we start, that pride slips in there and we start having favoritism or selfishness and discrimination pops up. You saw it here. Let's feed the, the Hebrew-speaking widows instead of the Greek-speaking widows. Let's give them the better portion. Let's give them more. And all of the kindling is put at the bottom, ready to cause a church split. Relationship fallout was ready. But through wise leadership in the community, they pulled together and humility was enacted and unity and peace were kept. Community, keeping peace and unity in a relationship, you must commit to forgive in order to move forward in growth. Preserving the relationships in your life, you must have a commitment to unity or peace. Because naturally, on their own, they will degrade and fall apart. Naturally, on their own, they'll, you'll get hurt and you'll want to respond in the same way. You'll receive a frustrating uh, email or action or comment at the dinner table and you'll bury it deep inside you and pile it up, pile it up until Sister Janice brings Cool Whip to the table and you just let it all spill out. We must be a body that's committed to preserving unity and peace. And this is not the first time that Paul talks or writes on humility. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 5, he says, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ had. You'll find a common string through Paul's teaching of always throwing the Christian life back to modeling Jesus Christ. You'll see him saying consistently, bring it back to you, go and be like Christ. Go and live worthy of the calling. Go and live to that relationship. Go and be like Jesus. And here we see him saying, be humble. You know, humility is not the same word that we hear it in the church. In the Greco-Roman world, when they saw humility, humility was used as a sign of weakness, a sign of, uh, uh, of uh, um, shame almost. It was a sign of that you were kind of snob, snobbing or uh, begging for something, that you had no moral character or a lack of strength inside of you. But Paul took the word humility and he redeemed it in the view of the cross. And so when Paul started preaching on humility, he was really the only one that brought it up. When he started preaching on humility, he gave it the definition of controlled strength. Meaning that when you put somebody else before your needs, that you could do something about it. But humility is actually taking the back seat and elevating somebody above yourself. He's saying, put your mind in the, for the other person first. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of controlled strength when you humbly live out your relationships day to day with each other. Choosing to be loving to the popular, influential, likable people. Choosing to give our attention to the people it's easy to get along with. It's the way the disunity starts to grow in our lives. 
But Paul's calling you, no, stay firm, stay in touch. Be with these people that make it hard to get along. Be with the people that disrupt your peace. Be with them that are try to break off the unity in your body. And hold them with humility. Put your own desires down and push theirs up in love. Practicing humility safeguards and keeps the unity and peace in the body. The second is with all humility and gentleness. Now I'm going to pull a Paul here and these are my words, not Paul's words. But when I hear the term practicing or putting on gentleness, I think of the opposite, which to me is harshness. And I think of what would tear apart a relationship. To me, it's the harsh words that we interact with each other. Harsh words are gossip. It's the talking behind somebody's back as soon as they leave the table. As soon as they walk out the door. Did you see what they did? Can you believe that? Did you hear this? It's the bitter, angry words of an unforgiven spirit that you bury them. And so the littlest thing sets you off and you can pull out every single hurt that they've ever done in your life. It's the person that goes in and tries to get everybody on your side and make it a us versus them scenario. And pulling a little bit from the future, Ephesians 5, 4 says, Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. Harsh talk always wears away unity and peace. In your lifetime, though, you'll come across the prickly people. You'll come across the people who are having a bad day. They've been hurt, so they're looking to hurt others. Like, what is your problem? But usually it's just pain spilling itself out of their life and onto yours. It's the story of the school bully that you see in the movies where that big bully and he's fighting all the other small kids, but then you realize that he's the kid that's getting hurt and abused at home. The kid that's being bullied by an abusive parent. It's the pain in somebody's life that drives them to start giving the pain to other people's lives. And so you will be hurt. You'll be hurt in relationships. But how do you respond to it? Do you respond with the harsh talk? Do you tell the stories behind their back? Do you try to gain people to your side and make it an us versus them scenario? Do you save up the wrongs or do you approach it with gentleness? James chapter 3 is the famous verse on, our, on our, how powerful our words are. He says, indeed, we all make many mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by the means of a small bit in its mouth. A small rudder makes the huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. Among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. Look at the strength that James ascribes to the power of your words. Every day you are going to have an opportunity to directly speak into the people in your surrounding life. Every day you have the ability to either speak harshly or to speak gently. Every day you have the opportunity to wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Every day you have the opportunity whether to 
guard your anger, to let your irritation out, to speak harshly or gently to your family, to your friends, and to your loved ones, or to the random person who cut you off on I-90. I'm talking to you, the big semi that almost <laughs> killed my family this Thanksgiving on my way home to Indiana. I'm talking to you. Or two, you will encounter somebody that speaks harshly into your life. And you have the opportunity to do the opposite, which is to speak gently into it and to stop it. You know, I remember uh, when I was a teenager into my early 20s, I worked construction. And the first year that I started, I remember my certain boss and the other workers would tell me, it's going to be a rough month or two. He always picks and takes all of his anger out on the new guy. doesn't really matter. And I remember learning all this new stuff and trying to do the best I could, but every day was a verbal lashing of just, you've done it wrong. How could you do this? Did you really think? That kind of talk. And I remember about a month or two in, I was just like finally starting to get it. Things were clicking. And so I was just working my hardest and really trying to get this guy's respect. But still, every day, I was getting the tongue lashing from him. But I remember really getting berated one time on one certain pour. And I was doing a good job. I was treating well and keeping up with the, boat, keeping up with the truck and all that kind of stuff. But he was still getting after me. But I remember Ben Hafley saying, man, lay off him. He's doing a good job. A co-worker, not a boss. But I remember so strongly that he shut up and he walked away. And I'm forever thankful that Ben Hafley advocated for me. That a gentle word was able to stop harsh talk. When you go to the office break room, it's so easy to pick on the person that does not do a good job. But you see what they did? Can you believe that they would act this way? And you try to create that us versus them mentality. When you have harsh talk that comes into your life, but you approach it and, and uh, balance it out with gentleness, you become a place where the harshness stops. You can offset the harshness with your gentle words. Gossip, slander, bitter, and anger, they can all be stopped by you. How will you respond when your spouse snaps at you? How will you respond when your kids talk to you with a lack of respect or honor? How will you respond when your coworkers want to share the juiciest gossip of the office and get you in on it? All of these are ways that gentleness will be appropriate and preserve the peace and the unity in the relationship. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer deflects anger but harsh words make tempers flare. In the very last part of this, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. I go back to Ephesians chapter 2, and it says, For Christ himself brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people, when, in his own body, on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Verse 16. Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. There are going to be times in relationships with any person that you have, whether it's a friend or a family member, a spouse or a kid or a work, co-worker, whatever, you will be hurt and you will be in the right and they will be in the wrong. 
There will be times where somebody will lash out against you, do something that's frustrating, and you are in the right. But would you judge my parenting if I told my kids, if you're in the right, you never say sorry, you never forgive, you never love unless they come and say sorry first. Christ himself is showing that he created this peace, this unity possible by literally dying on the cross. By literally sacrificing his body, he gives us the means to be able to keep unity and peace with each other. Paul mentions about three times in Ephesians that he's writing from jail. He says it again for in this very beginning of this. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. I wonder if in this place he's intentionally reminding them that it isn't his captivity. His suffering, he's still writing and sharing with them. Bearing each other with patience and love. There are going to be relationships in your life that you might take the brunt or take the hurt. But you who've studied chapters 1 through 3, you who know your calling, you who know that you are planted in the Lord, you who know every spiritual blessing, every person you have, your identity, are able to bear them. Not enough yourselves, but because of who you are in Christ. And you're able to love them even though it's not fair and it's not just. I want to be intentional. I always try to make this point. I'm not talking about abusive, ongoing relationships. I'm talking about the day-to-day hurts and pains of knowing people and being in relationship with people. Band, you can start making your way forward. Francis Chan has this good book on marriage called You and Me Forever, and there's one chapter specifically that he talks about when you're in a marital dispute or fight with your wife, you're never trying to win the argument. You're trying to win the marriage. There can be times that you win the argument, you win the, your point has come across, but you've actually lost in the relationship. And the same principle, same principle applies to all relationships in our lives. There may be times and probably will be times that you are justified and in the right and somebody's hurting you. But Jesus Christ, Paul himself, demonstrate a sacrificial life, willing to take the brunt and the pain of somebody else to preserve the relationship. And we too, we can too. First Peter 4.8 says, Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. It's okay to be right. It's okay to be the person that takes a wound. It's okay to be on the receiving end of a hurt and still respond in love and patience. And so Paul says, he says, Walk worthy, make your life match your calling by being humble, by living in gentleness, and by patiently bearing each other, picking each other up, carrying them the distance that they couldn't go themselves in love. Church, we're going to close service here in just a few minutes. But I'd like to just give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord. Would you please just stand with me right now? prayer team, you can come forward. Many of us are fresh from gathering with our family. 
Many of us are fresh from being trapped in a vehicle for hours with our kids and our wives. Many of us have felt the rage on the road or in the grocery store lines on our Black Friday shopping. And you may have experienced some of this disunity and this lack of peace over the last week. You may have realized that there's relationships that are still hurting. You may have realized that there are still people in your life and in your family that you do not have unity with. And so the questions I'd ask you to think about is to let the Lord bring those people to mind. Maybe there's somebody you're far from right now. Past wound or a past hurt that you're separated from. And right now you can start to ask the Lord, Lord, am I being humble in this situation? Lord, am I being gentle in this situation? Lord, what does it look like to bear this person with patience and love? I just let the Lord speak to you. Some of you right now have a relationship that's far from God or just broken, and you've done what you can. But they don't want or desire to be in a relationship with you. And so I'd invite you to the altar today. I invite you to carry that name in your heart and bring it up here and give it to the Lord. Say, God, I've done what I can. I give you this person. Would you begin to intercede? Would you begin to come and speak peace into our relationship and bring unity back into our relationship? Lord, would you begin to speak wholeness and health and healing into us, Father? There's altar team members up here. They'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. But the band's going to lead us just into a short chorus before we dismiss today. But Father God, we just thank you, God, for what you're doing. Thank you, God, for gathering us and bringing us back together after this holiday week. Lord, I pray that you would guard us and keep us. Bring these people to mind and guide us into a life of unity and peace. In Jesus' name.